there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. If you're an aspiring entrepreneur or you want to learn more about how to build an interesting career on Wall Street or in the financial technology world in particular, also known as fintech, then this is the episode for you, my friends. Because my next guest started out on Wall Street, then left to get an MBA, and today is the co-founder of a super interesting fintech startup. And he's also the host of a popular podcast. But before I introduce you to Alex Grodnick, just a quick reminder, if you haven't already signed up for the Java Junkies Journal, that's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings that gives you an exclusive look inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week, just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number for coffee.org and the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Pikes Peak-loving private equity and investment bankers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Alex Grodnick, the co-founder of a new fintech startup called Pay Club, which we're going to be learning more about in just a few minutes. Alex started out his professional career working as an analyst in investment banking at one of the biggies at JP Morgan before moving to Houlihan Loki and Will Rock Industries, where he worked in digital media. Alex's content packed podcast is called Moving Up. And I recommend you check it out, especially if you are interested in the world of Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Alex, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm ready. Thanks so much for having me, Andrea. Excited to be here. Awesome. Well, I am excited to talk with you. You have had such an interesting career, and I love the fact that you are a super scrappy guy. And I want to talk with you about the scrappiness that helped you to break into an investment banking in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about what you are doing now in your startup, Pay Club. What is Pay Club? And how long have you been building it, Alex? I started Pay Club two years ago after finishing business school. And it was a problem that I saw in business school, but really core problem that lots and lots of people face. And so what Pay Club allows you to do is create shared bank accounts. So you could think about creating a bank account with a significant other, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. I mean, right now that's a bigger responsibility than moving in together. And if you think about roommates, how does one roommate pay for the landlord, pay for the Netflix bill, pay the utilities, and everyone else pays them in in some other way. So what our platform does is it allows you to create these collaborative accounts where everyone can contribute money and everyone can see where the money is going. And then we have a digital debit card. So if four roommates all set up a pay club account and they kick in some money, they can pay the rent out of there. And then they can do the grocery shopping or go to Costco. And there's just transparency for everyone to see all of the payments and spending. Great. Now, how did you go about getting this idea off the ground? What were the steps that you took in the very beginning, Alex? Yeah. I mean, going to business school certainly helps. It's not a 
prerequisite for doing a startup by any means. I mean, a lot of people say it's actually not helpful at all, but it's really helpful. You can go into business school, you take classes, and we actually started businesses in business school. And so you learn about business plan creation and market sizing and understanding you know, how to de-risk a business before you start to really spend money on development or resources or anything like that. So you can talk with potential customers and you can understand the competitive landscape. So I'm pretty proficient at doing that. My background is also kind of in doing similar tasks just for large companies. But I found two really, really great founders. One of them is technical and he's our CTO and he actually codes and has developed our app. My co-founder, Jason, before this, he started what's now the largest college travel company in the country, a company called Just College. And so as he was traveling the country, going to different schools, selling trips like Cabo Spring Break or Las Vegas music festivals, this was really the problem that he saw was the way that groups collected and tracked money in the web of different ways that people attract it through Excel spreadsheets or Venmo or PayPal and cash and checks. And so he actually lived the problem. And this is one terminology I actually learned in business school that said you actually have to eat your own dog food. It's really helpful if you've lived and breathed the problem that you're trying to solve. Like someone could say, oh, it's great. Like I'd like to start a flying car business. Like that seems cool, right? But I don't really know that much about flying cars. I don't know how the auto industry works or the supply chain. I mean, it's just complicated. Not to say that you can't do all of those things. You certainly can if you're determined enough. It's just, it makes things a little bit easier if you have a deep understanding of the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah. And so did you meet your co-founders while you were getting your MBA? I did. They weren't in business school, but as I was in business school and I was immersing myself in the startup world and going to startup events around Los Angeles, because I went to UCLA's business school. I met them actually through a mutual friend and they were telling me about their idea and they wanted someone who understood finance and business. And so it was a pretty easy match. That's the other thing that's pretty important and you can definitely do a startup all by yourself, but it's certainly helpful to have co-founders and it's helpful to have co-founders that have complementary skill sets. There's three of us. Each one of us has a pretty different background. It makes things much easier than if we were all three just ex-investment bankers like myself. I mean, businesses like that certainly work. It makes things a little easier to have diversity. Definitely. So the app is available. I saw it there in the Apple store. You can download it. Where is it in terms of uptake and how are you rolling it out? I'm guessing mostly on college campuses at this point. I also suspect that you've got a bigger business plan that goes beyond the college campus. Sure. I mean, there's 17 million college students in this country. So it's a pretty big market. But banking always used to be about community. The bank that was in your town that your mom or dad took you to growing up, the bank that they had, the bank that was on your college campus, those were the banks that you went to and you'd walk in and the banker maybe knew who you are and, and knew your family. You know, now, Andrea, everyone or almost everyone's going to have a bank in their pocket, a bank on their phone, either now or in the next couple of years. So really banking is no longer about community. It's much more about delivering a super specific set of products and services that are highly tailored to you. Say you're a farmer. Does a regular bank meet your needs? Sure. But would a bank that's highly tailored to you and understands your business and could give you loans for crops or anything like that, or you're a landlord and there's a banks that could provide landlord services, or like our market, you're a college student. So you think about what the types of products that college students want. Probably they don't want mortgages and investments and car loans. They want 
other things, point of sale, financing, payment plans for trips, shared bank accounts. So that's the future of banking is really, really focused sets of products and services for a demographic or user base. Yeah, for sure. So Alex, I don't think any of our young listeners would be surprised to hear you say that it has taken you a lot of time over the last two years and a lot of energy to get where you are right now. And with very rare exceptions, most startups take a lot of slogging in the trenches to have any hope of success. But could you share with our listeners what some or even one of the biggest surprises have been for you and what you have learned from experiencing that curveball? Our society really glamorizes startups. They make it seem you leave your job, you have an idea, you can raise millions of dollars for that idea and you can get lots of users. And before you know it, you're changing the world. It's great. There have definitely been some companies that have kind of had that type of trajectory, but that is not really how it works. I mean, everything is going to be 10 or maybe even 100 times harder than you think it is. Everyone is against you, existing companies, you have no money, you have no resources. So basically, it's all trying to show signal, signal that your startup has great potential, it could work with basically no resources. And so in order to do that, you have to be scrappy, you have to be creative, you have to find interesting ways to accomplish a lot while you have very, very little. And so, I mean, if I could go back to two years and give myself that advice, I mean, I wouldn't change my path. I would still be doing the same thing. I would just set the expectations that everything is going to take a little bit longer and be a little bit harder than you initially think. Yeah. Just lower your expectations that no matter how smart you are, no matter how hardworking you are, it is probably going to be a long process. Yeah. It's not easy to change the world or put a small dent in the world. So if you <laughs> yeah. if you want to do those things, like there's definitely they can be done and you can 100% do them and the rewards will be fantastic. But of course, not going to be easy to be successful, right? Definitely. So Alex, one of the things that you know I do before actually starting an interview with a guest is to provide you with a platform to suggest ideas for points that you could make during the interview. And one of the things you suggested was the fact that you would like to talk with our young listeners about how difficult it was for you to go from a high-powered job in investment banking to making no money and how you prepared for that, the analysis that you did before you started this journey. It's very easy to get caught up in what our society says that you should be doing, right? Like our society puts a lot of emphasis or importance on the type of job that I used to have working on Wall Street. Like our parents, our friends, people we don't even know, they think that job is so great and you're on the right path and everything you're doing in your life is great. But what if that job like isn't intrinsically right for you? It's not an alignment of what your passion and how you want to be spending your time are. And that's not a bad thing. It just means that the job is not the right one for you. But it's always difficult when you're trying to find out, well, what is right for me? How do I do what I'm passionate about and what I was put on this earth to do when all of my life I've just been doing what everyone else tells me I should be doing? And so for me, growing up, I was a very entrepreneurial kid. I was starting businesses left and right. I had my hands in so many different things. Making money was, it just came natural. 
then I went to college and everyone was talking about working on Wall Street and doing investment banking. And so I said, oh, that's what I need to do. That sounds so cool. And so I followed that path. And just like anything else in my life, I put my head down and didn't take no for an answer. And I got that job. And as I'm doing it, I'm realizing, okay, you know, there's definitely pieces to this job that I like. It's very demanding. I'm making lots of money, but I don't really feel fulfilled doing this. And so at that point, it's like, okay, well, if I don't feel fulfilled doing this, then what should I be doing? Because this is kind of like what I've worked my entire life to get. So at that point, you're not knowing what you should be doing. And it's difficult. That's when I decided to go to business school. And I thought, okay, I can go take a couple years and try to figure out what I really was put on this earth to be doing. And for me, the most impactful moment of my business school experience, actually, it happened in a classroom, which is rare for business school. Business school is really about travel and meeting people and having incredible experiences with classmates. But for me, it was, it was simple. It happened in a class at, at UCLA. And it was a leadership type course. And the professor, who's a CEO coach, it was an exercise where he said, we're going to discover who your authentic self is. And the way that he described the exercise is he said, to think of your life as a movie and go rewind through the movie. And as you're going back and you're seeing the DVD of your life, essentially, make note of the times when you're feeling like you were particularly motivated or passionate or feeling alive. And so fine, I'm looking back at the times of my life and I'm writing down the times. And so fine, I wrote down six or seven instances. And afterwards, I'm looking at these. And every single one of them was when I was doing something entrepreneurial, starting a business, or selling something. And so it was like, it became so clear to me, why am I chasing these jobs where you work with a bunch of people from Harvard and people get paid a lot of money and society puts a lot of importance on them when that's so clearly not what I need to be doing. I don't put a lot of importance on those prestigious jobs. I would be happy owning a dirt farm and, and selling worms. That sounds like a pretty cool existence to me. So basically from that point on, which happened in my first quarter of business school, I knew I needed to become an entrepreneur and I needed to get practice reps, starting businesses and just kind of getting that muscle working again because I'd worked in investment banking for so long where it's really not entrepreneurial at all. And thinking of new businesses and ways to be creative in the world is, takes practice. It's getting that muscle working again. And so I used business school as a platform to start to do that and think about lots and lots of businesses and practice starting a bunch of businesses. And the podcast was one of the businesses I started that showed some signs of resonating and doing well. And then the fintech company, Pay Club, that was another one. And so we live in a world now where it's easy, or not easy, but definitely easier to start things on the side, start doing things, see if they're working, see if, they, if they're not working. And if they are working, then start to put more time, resources, energy behind them. And if not, then fine, it's a side project and you don't have to do it any further. So that was basically what I did. And I graduated from business school two years ago. And I don't have the society signs of making lots of money yet that our society says, well, that's valuable what you're doing. But I'm so much more fulfilled now, Andrea, and waking up and just eager to go do and start and find solutions to problems. So I'm much happier now than I've ever been. And I know that I'm on the correct path for myself. Well, let me just say that, first of all, that was an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. And the fact that you have tapped into that at such a young age is fantastic. I can tell you I'm now on my fourth profession. I'm not earning anything from Time for Coffee, which is fine. And yet I am getting, like you, so much joy 
out of doing this. And the biggest part is because I get to talk to people like you, Alex, and share your stories with our listeners in the hopes that it will help them. And I would love to talk with you about your podcast. You have done over 90 episodes. That means 90 interviews with really interesting people who are in the world of finance. One of the things that I've gotten out of hosting time for coffee that I never expected, Alex, and I'm kind of guessing it's the same thing for you, is that because I'm at the center of interviewing dozens and dozens of really interesting professionals, in this case, and dozens of careers, I'm getting to connect the dots in terms of kind of the top line takeaways. What are the common experiences, the big lessons learned among all these different people? And so, Alex, my question for you is, as someone who's been on point for 90 interviews, what have been the biggest takeaways for you as to what these successful professionals in the world of finance have in common? If you had to do sort of pattern recognition, what would you say those takeaways are? You're absolutely right. It's a very fortunate position to be in to be able to speak with so many interesting, accomplished people. And we've had co-founders of Facebook and huge tech companies and big-time venture capitalists and really a great mix of different people. But I would tell you that across all of the episodes, if there is a central thesis, it's that nobody has a grand plan for their career. And it's been echoed so many times. I mean, I recently spoke with the founder of Google Voice, and he had no clue that he was going to develop a game-changing telecommunications company. But what happens is people work hard. They put themselves in good situations around like-minded individuals that are also hardworking and want to advance themselves in the world. And if you're a good person and you work hard, then what happens is, maybe you're not going to believe me when I'm telling you this, but... The universe has a way of working itself out. And it's just the best message because for someone who doesn't know quite what they should be doing, whether they're doing the right thing, should I be do this or do that? Basically, careers are long. This is a, one of my best pieces of advice is careers are very, very long. We're all going to live till we're well into our hundreds. I tell my wife I'm going to live till I'm 200 years old. If I'm living that long, how long is my career going to be? 100 years longer? So to think of a period of a couple of year stretch in your career of, oh, is this the right thing? Am I learning enough? Am I making enough money? It's literally crazy. So as really, Andrea, as long as you're learning every single day, getting more connections and, and not just you know random connections, but authentic connections where you're having authentic conversations with people, asking them how they are and what their hopes and dreams are. And they're asking the same of you. You're getting smarter every day. You're getting more connections every day. You're getting in better health and shape every single day. Those things will pay dividends across a hundred year career. And so Yes, believe me. Like it's very difficult to lie in bed every night and think like, "Oh, did I do enough today? Am I on the right path?" The real thing is, you're not going to know. Like, there's no right answer to any of these questions. So as long as you're doing your best, then just know from these hundred people that I've had on the podcast, the universe has taken care of all of them. So I like to think that it will take care of me and and everyone else too. I so love that. And I completely agree, Alex, when you said kind of trust the universe. Another way that I put it is when you put positive energy out, you will attract positive energy. 
So live that authentic life that Alex talked about and don't stress about whether that first, second, third, fifth job is exactly the perfect job. There really almost is no such thing as a perfect job, but work hard, put your head down, learn. Even in the jobs you hate, you will learn. There are going to be lessons that you're going to take from that that will be valuable ones that you will be able to apply, whether it's four jobs from now or two jobs from now. So I completely agree with you, Alex. Thank you so much for making that point. I want to pivot now to after you graduated from college, you went to Franklin and Marshall and you went right to Wall Street. You alluded in the Time for Coffee Espresso shots and our listeners can check out show notes to see if that episode has already dropped. But you alluded to the fact that even though it's a very regimented process, the recruiting process to land in one of these big companies on Wall Street, you had a different path there. What was that path and how did you land at JP Morgan? Yeah, basically all comes down to just not taking no for an answer. I mean, it would be hard to get this job in a good economy. I got this job in the middle of the financial crisis. And the way that I did it was by forging relationships with people that were working in these banks. I knew that none of these banks were going to come to my school. I mean, some of them were, but they didn't because of the crisis. So I wasn't just going to be able to drop a resume on an on-campus recruiting center. I was going to have to go out and try to make what I wanted to make happen. And so I don't know the number, but hundreds, I mean, probably less than a thousand, but more than 500 cold emails to people. And, you know, you're figuring out what the email address format is for Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan. And then you're finding people that you have some type of commonality with. Maybe you went to the same high school, the same college. Maybe you you know live in the same area or you know someone that's in common. And if you don't have those things, that's okay too. You can still cold email people, but you're really trying to connect with people on a human basis and say, hey, you know, can we have a quick 10, 15 minute phone call? And then trying from there to escalate that to another phone call, maybe a little bit longer. Then from there, maybe to a coffee. Then from there, maybe a meeting in their office. And you're just, all this is trying to get a job interview. It's just, it's a long process that's going to be filled with rejection. And so the key to it, the key to all of this is that you can't be afraid to hear no. So you really need to desensitize yourself to the fear of rejection and get into how you could start to think about doing that. But whatever you're doing in life, you're trying to get a job at a hard to get company, or you're trying to raise money for your startup like I'm trying to do now, I mean, you're going to get told no hundreds and hundreds of times. My brother is a uh, an actor. I live in Los Angeles. He lives in Los Angeles. If he let every producer or director or whatever it is tell him no, that he's not going to have the part and just got sad and felt bad for himself and was lazy and didn't move on, then like he wouldn't be an actor. It requires a really thick skin and just continuing to push forward through it all. So how did you develop that thick skin? It's called rejection therapy. And it's a process of desensitization. And so you can look at it as say you're afraid of germs. And if every single day you walk into some public place and you put your hands on a doorknob or a rail on a staircase or something, over time, you're going to see that you're fine. You're not sick. You're still alive. That things are okay. So over time, you're going to start to not be afraid of germs so much. I had a friend that just, he left finance and he went and traveled the world and he lived in South America for a while. And he was really afraid of spiders. And 
he told me that after living in the South American jungle for six months that he could care less about a spider anymore. So this is how our brains work. And we're naturally programmed to be afraid of hearing no. We don't want that. From an evolutionary perspective, when you get no, you starve or you die, or you get eaten by a lion. So you're always trying to not get rejected. So that's just naturally programmed into us. But if you actively seek out rejection and you hear it over and over and over, all of a sudden you start to realize, hey, like this is no big deal. And so you can game the system, which is the cool part about it, is yes, I want to ask for jobs or for money for my startup, or I want to ask someone to go out on a date with me. And those things are hard to do. So if I go through life asking for really, really small rejections that are actually kind of pretty easy to ask for, then you can start to build up that muscle. And over time, and I'm not talking about a lot of time, I'm talking about days or weeks, you can desensitize yourself to the fear of rejection. So the way it works is, or the way that I put it into practice, is every day when I bought my sandwich for lunch, I would say, hey, can I please have a discount on this sandwich? And actually, Andrea, you'd be surprised that so many times you actually get a discount. People, Seriously? Oh, yeah. People want to help you. And so this is one of the cool pieces of, of rejection therapy is, yeah, the goal of it is to get rejected. But the cool piece of it is, A, that you start to see the world in a really positive light because as you're starting to go out there and put yourself out there and ask for things, you end up getting a lot of yeses. And so I can go into some of the like the yeses and things that I got, but it really affirms for you how great mankind is and that we want to help. The other cool piece of it is, yeah, you're going to get some confidence because you're going to be able to just ask for things and not be afraid to do it. But you also get an increased sense of humility. And what I mean by that is, say you're sitting in a classroom and you want to ask a question in class. And we all are sitting there saying, oh, should we ask the question? Should I not ask the question? Is this a good question? Is this a dumb question? And literally, I can tell you after you ask the question, nobody remembers. No one cares. No one even knows that you asked that question. And the reason for that is because we're all so caught up in thinking about ourselves and thinking, is this a good hair day for me? Do I look good today? Should I ask this question today? When was the last time that you looked at someone else and said, oh, they're having, they're having a bad hair day? You wouldn't. That's not how it works because we're all concerned about ourselves. And so as you start to put yourself out in the world and ask for things, you get a lot of yeses, you get increased confidence, but you start to see that like no one cares. Really, if you ask someone some stupid question, you say, hey, can I have a high five? Can I have a dollar? Can I have a hug? Can I have a ride across town? All pretty simple things to ask for. No one's going to remember that you asked any of these things and no one cares. And you think, oh, I'm going to sound stupid, but you really don't. Yes, definitely. I actually think, Alex, that maybe half the time people don't remember, but especially when you ask a good question, you end up getting noticed by people who wouldn't otherwise notice you. And along with the great advice that you gave earlier that has to do with taking advantage of where you are at that time to kind of network, I actually think that many of the students, many of your classmates who you wouldn't otherwise have met are going to end up coming up to you or noticing you in a way like, hey, that Alex Grosnick, man, he is really smart. And he's got some, you know, he's got some balls. He asked that question or, you know, raised that point And they're going to respect you and admire you. Yeah, that's what happens when you put yourself out in the world. I said the goal of this exercise is to hear no, to get rejected. But so many times over the course of it, amazing things happen. You hear yes, people come up to you. They want to be your friend. You get to do cool things. I was walking by a movie production in LA a while ago. And I said, hey, can I call action on the set? 
And they said, sure. So I went on there and I clapped the clipboard and got to have a cool little experience. Or I was in a restaurant recently and I said, you know, can I come back and see the kitchen and see where you age the steaks? And they said, sure, come back. So like, yeah, if I got told no, sure, fine. I got my rejection for the day. But if you get told yes, you get to have all these fun, cool, interesting experiences. So is this something that you have kind of crafted for yourself, Alex, or is this rejection therapy something that already exists that you just tapped into? It's definitely a methodology that's out there in the world. I don't know how common it is, but yeah, I talk about it a lot and I have all my friends trying to do it. Like we go out for dinner and we all want to take turns saying, you know, asking the waiter saying, hey, can we please have a discount on our dinner? And like you get it so much of the time say, yeah, sure, I can give you 10%. Or I bought something at Bloomingdale's a couple weeks ago and I got 15% off. So it's not like... Amazing. The way to do it though, isn't to like be obnoxious about it or like be timid about it saying, hey, you know, I'm practicing this rejection therapy thing. I just have to ask you a silly question. No, you have to walk up to that counter with confidence and say, hi, may I please have a discount? Look them in the eyes and say it. And yeah, it's hard to do, but after you do this once, twice, three times, you're starting to get more confidence. You're starting to see that like no one's going to bite your head off if you ask them a question. And you start with all these little things, asking for a stick of gum, a high five, a discount, whatever it is. And you build up to starting to ask for more important, impactful things, promotions at work, jobs, dates, investors. And by starting on the little and building up to the big, you can desensitize yourself to the fear of it. And yeah, you're never going to be completely never afraid to like walk in into your boss's office and ask for some big promotion, but you're going to have the confidence to know that you can do it. Nothing bad's going to happen. And this gets back to the moral of this entire thing is that like, you're only going to get what you ask for. So if you put yourself out in the world and start asking for things, good things can come. I absolutely love that. One quick follow-up on your other excellent suggestion around cold emailing, and you do talk about that in your podcast when you were saying that you sent out hundreds of emails and you were searching for people where you had some common background that you shared, was that through LinkedIn? Did you use other sites to search? What were they? Yeah, LinkedIn's great. I still use LinkedIn for my startup, right? So we raised some money. And the way that we got into the correct investors is I look at companies that are in the same kind of space. They're in fintech. They're in the same type of industry and stage. And I see who they raised money from. And then I find LinkedIn. I find who they're connected to. And so cold emailing, there's an art to it. It certainly is a numbers game. You can send emails to hundreds of cold people, but your odds can greatly be enhanced if you add a personalized touch. You say, hey, Joe, I'm emailing you because... X, Y, and Z. I see you invested in so-and-so startup. My company is similar. We're both in Los Angeles. We'd love to hop on a quick call. You can take it the other approach where you just send a boilerplate email to every single person. Your response rate is just going to be a little bit lower. I'm still saying you'll get responses. People want to help, but you can increase the chances of it if you customize a little bit. Of it. And yeah, LinkedIn is a great place to do the research for that. You also have said on some of your podcast episodes that you need to think about the value that the person you're emailing may be looking for. So to offer value to the person you're reaching out to that you're trying to network with. Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics, right? I mean, we're all the same. We're all humans. We're all trying to have our best lives and maximize our resources and be the happiest. And so if I get an email from someone that says, hey, this is what I want, I want, I want. Yeah, okay, you know, I generally want to help people, so... And I respond to every single email. So fine, 
and maybe I'll, I'll help you. But if you send me an email and it shows you did a little research, you know who I am, you have a clear reason for emailing me, but then even better is if you're able to provide a piece of value to me because you're just looking to suck away my value to you. But if you're able to say, hey, I know you're you know, in this industry, I know so-and-so, happy to make the connection. Or for me, the podcast, really when I started the podcast, I started it while I was in business school and I was basically having these coffee chats with people all over LA and trying to meet as many interesting people as I could. I think it's just a more interesting ask to make of people of saying, hey, do you want to be on a podcast versus, hey, do you want to just grab coffee so I can learn everything about you? Because it's the same principle, right? I'm still going to learn everything about you and I'm still going to meet you and make the connection and you're going to be part of my network now. But by offering them a platform to talk about who they are and how they got to where they are and their hopes and their dreams, you've given them something that they don't really have an opportunity to do most of the time, right? Everyone enjoys talking about themselves and what they're interested in and how they got to where they are. So if you give them an opportunity to do that, that's providing value. If you have a social media channel or a blog or something, you can do the same thing. So really, that's what keeps the world going around. I mean, it's the golden rule. Treat others how you want to be treated. You got to provide value if you want to take value. Yeah. And we should tell our listeners that that's how you and I met. You cold emailed me and said, hey, it kind of seems like we're both doing the same type of podcast. Maybe there's a way that we could help one another out. So, I mean, this is a case in point. I do a lot of cold emailing. It's powerful. Absolutely. I think that is fantastic advice, Alex. I just want to close the loop on your story with JP Morgan before we get to the final questions that I like to ask all of my guests. And that is, how did you get that job at JP Morgan where you were reporting as the sole analyst for the vice chairman of the private bank? Like I said, this was in the middle of the crisis. No one came to my school. And I sent all those cold emails, and I ended up developing a relationship with the recruiter for JP Morgan. And I kind of was able to get from the back door into a recruiting process. And the job, which I was originally interviewing for, was supposed to be in New York. And I had a couple interviews. And you know, these investigating interviews, they interview you 25 times. They just interviews on top of interviews, so many interviews. And I was going through the process, and things were going really well. And then I got to the end of it, and they said, Alex, you know, we really like you, except we don't have a spot for you in New York. I'm like, okay, great. Like, how many jobs have I interviewed for during this crisis? Like, I'm okay, so you don't have a job for me. And they're like, but we want to hire you, but we just, you're going to have to move to some other place. And so I ended up after graduating from school and training with JP Morgan in New York for three months, I ended up moving to Detroit. And I had never been there before my first day of work. And a lot of my friends and stuff, they thought I was crazy. Like, oh, well, you're moving to some place, Detroit. Why would you do that? And it's because, I had this kind of methodology of my kind of career search was I never wanted to put uncertainty ahead of opportunity. And yeah, moving to a new place where I know not a single person, that's pretty high on the uncertainty scale. But this was a great opportunity. And I was going to get to work for a great company and doing what I wanted to do. And it allowed me to actually move out to Los Angeles when I was completing the program. And then I got a different job in an investment bank out in Los Angeles. And so it really opened up all these doors, but I never would have gotten to do any of those things had I been like afraid to move to some place where I had cold winters and I didn't know anybody. Definitely. Well, thank you for finishing the story there. Just very quickly, I know you went to F&M. You majored in finance with a minor in real estate finance. Did you know what you were going to do, Alex, when you graduated? 
I mean, I got the job midway through senior year, so I was really fortunate. Most of my friends had no jobs when they graduated. So really on the lucky side, but you know, as they say in anything else, you create your own luck. So I definitely applied for 50 times the amount of jobs that anyone else applied for and sent hundreds and hundreds of more emails than, than anyone else. And so, you know, I got to have a job because of that and they didn't. So that's just kind of how the world works. I don't think I would necessarily call that luck. You made your own luck for sure. Sure. So Alex, two final questions. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? In my case, I was fired twice when I was in my 40s. Those are just two examples of difficult experiences that actually turned out to be incredibly wonderful opportunities. But what was it? And what was the lesson that you took out of that experience? This gets back to you know how careers are long and we all have our own path. And as I was working in these investment banking jobs, and it started to hit me that I didn't really like this job, which was a hard thing to do because I'd worked my whole life to get there. I was making lots and lots of money. I mean, these jobs pay you six figures your first year out of college. So society is saying that everything is going right. Why would I want to leave this? But internally, I wasn't fulfilled and I had no idea why. I'm sitting there with 10 peers. We're all analysts. We're all smart, hardworking, and they were all liking the job to an extent. So I was like, well, what's what's wrong with me? Am I not as smart as them? Are they harder working than I am? So I looked at it as a personal deficit. And it really took couple years of searching and going to graduate school to really find the answer to this question is like, no, there's nothing wrong with me. It's this job didn't align what my passions are and who I am internally. I'm a very, like I said, I'm an entrepreneurial person. And in this very regimented job, as I was getting told what to do all day long, and I would have creative ways of doing things. And no one liked when I had my creative ideas and, and no one valued those things. And that's fine. It just maybe it means that that job wasn't quite right for me. So it was really hard because I left and it's like, well, I have no clue what I'm going to be doing in my life. I'm leaving this job that society says is so valuable and I'm being paid all this money. And my parents and friends are like, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? And I didn't have a good reason to tell them. It's not like, oh, I've got some better opportunity. I'm going to go do X, Y, Z. I had no clue. I just knew that that wasn't my path. And I had to go find out what was my path. Took some time, soul searching and figuring it out, but it happened. And now I'm on this path where I have these startups and I'm waking up fulfilled every single day and I'm feeling like my authentic self, but it's not easy. It's not like I'm making all the money that that I was making earlier. I mean, I I definitely think the money's going to come. So there's no right path. The only right thing to do is just to not compare yourself to everybody else and say, oh, well, they're making so much money or they're doing X, Y, and Z, or they have this kind of career or they're going to law school. Whatever's right for someone else doesn't necessarily mean it's right for you. So it's that exercise of figuring out who you are, those moments of your life where you are most fulfilled, your authentic self, really finding those times. And then once you find those times, you're able to start to whittle away what is right, what is not right. And there is no perfect job, right? Like I could be doing lots of different things, but you're trying to align your interests, your passions today. These things evolve and are dynamic. You're trying to find out where you are in your life today and how you can align the time, the work you're doing to make a living with your passions. Oh my goodness. Alex, you have so much wisdom and you are still relatively early in your professional life. I just can't even imagine what you're going to be like 20 years from now. Be like the guru, <laughs> one of those gurus sitting on a mountain, 
So well, I'll give you I'll give you my mom's cell phone number and you can call her and tell her these things. She would like to hear it. Well, you know what? Have your mom listen to this episode when it drops and she'll hear it right from me because she did a great job. And man, Alex is just knocking it out of the park. I mean, just in terms of your ability to kind of block out the noise that's out there in our world today and just focus on tapping into what's inside your heart and where your true north is. And you're heading in that direction with both feet. You're all in. Yeah. I mean, you have to be all in, but Andrea, none of these things are easy. Like I definitely lie in bed at night uncertain and I have all the same struggles that everybody else has. I just have a clear vision of what I need to be doing. I think that's so important that you share that. And let me just say from where I sit and I've got more miles on the odometer. I'm on my fourth career. I've had a very fulfilling series of careers that I've had to date. And I absolutely love what I'm doing. But like you, Alex, I have no idea what the end game is. Having said that, I'm just trying to focus on today. That doesn't mean I'm not thinking about how to monetize while keeping the content free for my audience. I don't know what that is, but I'm trying to enjoy the process and be in the here and now and not to stress about the what ifs. That's just yeah. what I'm trying to do right now. So I feel where you are. I think we're in a similar place, even though we're at different stages of our lives. Professionally, we're in a similar spot. I think you're farther ahead than I am, definitely in terms of the monetization and kudos to you. So final time for coffee question, Alex. If you could go back to F&M and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, it's all back to this, how careers are long and just trying to find peace with where you are and what you're doing and maximizing every situation that you have. Because as you said, there's learnings to be had from everything, from failures, from successes. There's this quote, you know, I either learn or I succeed. And if you succeed, like, great, you learn and you succeed. If you fail, you probably learn even more. So everything is, is about learning, but it's difficult as you're early on in your career, anywhere in your career, and you're like, am I doing the right thing? Is this not the right thing? Am I on the right path? There is no right path. Just go and have the confidence that you're going to be doing the right thing. You got to bet on yourself because if you don't bet on yourself, then what is there? So work hard, put yourself in the right place, and the universe will figure it out. Mm. Alex, I think in addition to having that grit that I mentioned earlier in our interview, you also have a tremendous amount of courage because that's what it takes to buck the trend and to leap into the unknown with a startup, to quit a job that's paying you a lot of money that you recognize you don't enjoy. There are plenty of people who stay in those jobs and there are plenty of people who stay in jobs they hate. What you're doing, what you're modeling is so important and I just want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. Alex's app is called Pay Club. Check it out. It sounds like it could help a ton of people living on college campuses or group homes after they graduate a million different ways. His podcast is called Moving Up. You've gotten a real window 
into just how terrific Alex is at sharing the wisdom that he has. And I highly recommend it. Alex, you're just a terrific guy. And I want to thank you so much for making the time to talk with me. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.